Welcome to this episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. On today's edition, titled Complex Care Management in a Person-Centered Model, experts from St. Ambrose and the community discuss patient advocating, relationship building, and identifying roles through a person-centered model. This episode's podcast is hosted by Ann Garten. Ann is the director of the SAU Institute for Person-Centered Care and nursing faculty. Before we get started, we want to remind everyone to please review current COVID reports from reliable sources such as the CDC, World Health Organization, and your local and public health departments. If you live in the Quad City area, you can visit TogetherQC.com for reliable local resources. This podcast was recorded through the phone to support the current recommendations. Welcome to the Institute of Person-Centered Care podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. I'm Ann Garten, the director for the SAU Institute and nursing faculty, and will be your host for today's podcast. Our episode today is titled, Managing Patient Encounters, Tips to Engage Positive Outcomes. For this episode, I wanted to come to a better understanding of what patients face when they have complex medical needs and face challenges related to social determinants of health. Many of our community members in our care may become frustrated and overwhelmed due to their complex needs And we must also recognize that providers may have patients that evoke feelings of helplessness, frustration, and despair within their care. How might we, in a person-centered model, work through these obstacles? Therefore, I reached out to a few peers who have had experience in providing care in a person-centered model, and I invited a community member to hear more from the patient's perspective. First, I'd like to welcome our guests, Dr. Sarajini Ratnakar, Mary Jo Blumier, And lastly, a community member, George. We have chosen to support George by only using his first name since he's sharing very personal health information. Welcome, everyone. I wonder if each of you would share a little bit about yourselves. Sarojini, shall we start with you? Yes, thank you for having me today. My name is Sarojini Rednacker, and I've been working for the last 16 years. I completed my residency at Genesis Medical Center in Davenport. And I worked in the Genesis Hospital here locally and then went on to work at the Medical College of Wisconsin Hospitals and also in Cedar Rapids. I enjoy teaching medical students and residents, and I've been involved in several hospital committees where they keep patient care and safety at the forefront. Thank you and welcome. Mary Jo, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Yes, thanks for having me, Anne. Um, I am Mary Jo Bliminger. I've been a physician assistant for 27 years, and I primarily practiced in primary care for 25 years um, with a special interest in diabetes. I have been a faculty member here at St. Ambrose University in the physician assistant program for the past six years since we started the program. And I believe, Anne, you invited me here because of my past experience in in dealing with patients with social determinants of health and healthcare disparities as I had um, had the opportunity to take care of the uh, the homeless when I worked for community health care the first 10 years of my career. So thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And indeed, that is why I invited you. George, how about a little bit about yourself? 
Sure. Uh, and again, thank you for having me. I hope my story and uh, whatever I have to say can help other people that find themselves in my shoes someday. I'm George, 50 years old. I live in Davenport, Iowa. And just a little background about myself and my and my health is December 18th of 2006, I was sitting at work and had some kind of chest pains, called my wife and she said, just, you know, get yourself to the emergency room, found out I was having a heart attack. So 36 years old, I had a heart attack, uh, no stents or no angioplasty, but on a lot of medicine, exercise, kind of had to change my lifestyle at that point. I've never been the healthiest person on the planet. Um, so kind of took uh, control of that and moved forward. And then about another 10, 15 years later, was feeling very tired, could not figure out what was wrong, confused, hot, cold, um, was diagnosed then with diabetes. And that was kind of a shock. That one's always seems to be a wake-up call. So the uh, the heart issues, the diabetes put together, really had to adjust not only my physical day-to-day life, but also my mental. I'm I'm no longer a young kid. I'm no longer bulletproof. I I'm getting older, and I need to accept some of those things. And come to find out that a side effect of both of those diseases, like a lot of them, is uh, depression. And not too long ago was recently diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder and, you know, the the clinical depression that goes along with that. So with these, uh, you know, three burdens on my shoulder, I I really had to take control of what my path is moving forward as far as my health, because it's mine. And what I found through this journey was I had three different doctors telling me three different things. One was use this medicine, one was use that medicine, and we never seemed to be on the same page. So uh, it, it came a time where, you know, you, you have to put your foot down and say, you, you guys work for me, and I need to figure this out because this is my health. It's not your plan. It's about me. So I, I hope that helps kind of point some uh, direction as far as how I see uh, person-centered care and what I had to do to get to get to where I am today. Thank you for sharing. That is a lot of complex needs. And and I think you just shared as well your definition of person-centered care a little bit, but do you have anything to add regarding that? From the patient perspective, I have been very lucky to have found physicians that are willing to work with me. And that's not always the case. I have had in the past physicians that were you come in, they take your temperature, they write you a prescription, and you leave. The, the physicians that I have now, I have a relationship with professionally as well as we know a little bit about each other. And because of that, I feel more comfortable opening up. I feel more comfortable talking about uncomfortable subjects, if you will. And I think that has come a long way to make me feel more comfortable talking to more uh, doctors as, as I continue to get older, but, but I had to take control. I had to pull the trigger on that one. Thank you. Sarah Jeannie or Mary Jo, would either one of you like to add what you think your practice is around person-centered care? Okay. Can I, if I can go first, Mary Jo? That's fine. Go ahead, Sarah Jeannie. Yeah. 
So listening to George's story, I think there are a few things that uh, come. First of all, most importantly is I think having effective communication, like uh, George mentioned, that he is able to even speak uh, the most uncomfortable things with his physician. And that happens only if you have effective communication, most importantly. And that is like a building block of the relationship building. And when the physicians are open up to hear, they have the patients to hear what the patient is saying and understanding what their goal is and how their lifestyle is. What do they understand about their own disease process? And being realistic about it, that is the most important thing. And after having had that open conversation, what I feel is like, yes, we have to have a good dialogue about what exactly is the disease you're having, like how George has diabetes. Yes, there's no cure for it, but we've got to have symptom control. We have to make sure that he doesn't have complications from it. He doesn't have any frequent and therein, that's when you say, okay, I have these expectations. What are your expectations of me? So, okay, we are trying to understand each other's role. And like he said, he has to go from diff- go to see different doctors for different things. So if the primary care physician is like the captain of the ship, along with trying to understand what George is going through, then you say, you know what? This whole responsibility begins right from the front desk. It's like, hey, are they being helpful to get George in when he wants to? Like start from your the front office. Then is like, say, suppose he's seeing a nurse practitioner or something that the doctor is not available. Okay, do they understand the whole story? And then having had that, is he having regular blood work? Am I on top of it? And how he also mentioned was about the medication list. It's like, hey, everyone's prescribing so many different things. But is there somebody who's really keeping a log of it? Is, is Apart from George, is there somebody else responsible? I think that falls, that burden falls upon the family physician to take that uh, leadership and keep that thing straight, not only for the benefit of the patient, but even the doctor has to be on top of it. So, okay, is he seeing the cardiologist, the psychiatrist, and the diabetic educator, the nutritionist, the dietitian? Okay, everyone has their specific role. So is he comfortable? Is he having a good dialogue with them? So at then managing the expectations. So yes, you've got to be absolutely realistic because everyone has a different lifestyle and everyone is not like a cookie cutter. It's like, hey, this is the treatment for diabetes, these are the medications, and this is what you got to take. But Everyone's lifestyle is the same. Some could be traveling, some could be sitting. Even like you have different jobs to do different things. So how we need to have like a free, uh, frank discussion about that and what are the barriers and how is it that I as a physician can help him uh, get rid of those barriers and how far is the family involved because this disease is not like, um, I'm like any, any, any disease is not part of like uh, uh, just one person is dealing with because the whole family is dealing. So how is the family helping? How is that the physician can help? So if you have all these open uh, discussions, I think the patient centered care will be easily achievable for any disease as a matter of fact. Excellent. And I would agree. I also think we, I would like to add when we talk right now, we're, we keep using individual because we have George here as our example. But when we look at the definition of person-centered care, we're also talking about community. So hence why we pull in the social disparities within the community. Mary Jo, what would you have to add? Well, I really commend George. Um, from my experience in dealing with patients, they don't, never get to that point where they say, wait a minute, this is about me. And I think sometimes we as 
healthcare providers forget that the patient needs to be at the center of our care. And we really need to look at what are the goals for our patient. Um, and so Jordan said that, well, we are the captain of the ship. And I, I usually use the term, I'm, I'm the coach or the cheerleader on the sideline. But when we're talking about chronic disease management and all of these um, conditions, especially for diabetes for George, it really is up to the patient. And I think sometimes um, we as providers have our agenda and we and, and what we want them to do. We need to get them controlled. We need to do this. We need to have their A1C at goal. We need to have their, their blood pressure at goal, all of these things. But we need to take a step back sometimes and say, what is our patient's goal? What do our patients want? Again, that is the heart of patient-centered care. And um, I had the opportunity to attend a training on motivational interviewing, and it really changed my whole practice. And it made my life as a provider so much more enjoyable because I shifted the focus from me and my goals for my patients to my patients and their goals for their health, and how can I help them achieve those goals? You know, when we look at um, maybe a patient travels a lot, so how can I help them manage their food while they're traveling? How can I help them solve the barriers of exercising um, and help them discover moments that can they can exercise? Maybe getting up 30 minutes earlier, maybe walking around. Um, during their son's baseball game, you know, uh, those kinds of things that are things that fit the patient's lifestyle. And I think sometimes we as providers need to take a step back and focus on our patients and helping them. And I know that I had a lot more success in helping my patients manage their um, diseases, their diabetes, their chronic illnesses, when I started looking at their goals and and what they want. Um, And again, managing medications can be very complex too. And so what do you think, George? Is that what maybe helped you? That has. And you you hit on one that's close to home as far as for my lifestyle, there are certain things that I need. For example, when I was first diagnosed with uh, diabetes, the solution was the insulin pen, which is great. Don't get me wrong. But for my job and my lifestyle, I really needed to be on a pump. I had to fight for that. I I use fight, maybe that's not the right word, but I had to ask for that and I had to go to my insurance company and get the dealer, the uh, doctor's buy-in that that is what's best for me in order for me to control this disease. I think as well, George, if I may share, that you have had um, problems with being overweight. And so can you share with a little bit regarding that and, and how you pulled in your values and your needs um, based off of the advice you were getting uh, on, on weight loss? Because that is obviously important, but how could you manage that rather than they manage that for you? Yes. First of all, so if I go back to my first uh, challenge being the heart attack, for the first six or seven years, I was a machine. I worked out religiously. I lost a lot of weight. To me, that's that was unsustainable. I could not do that every single day. And, you know, the old adage, I fell off the wagon. So I tell myself, I can't go on a diet. I have to have a lifestyle that I can live with, that I can work with, travel with, uh, be with my family, but still that is individual to me that will take care of my health needs. I've had to come up with that myself. 
And the big thing for me is, it, and it took a while to get there, is to be open and honest with your doctor. If you can't tell them your deep, dark secrets about what's going on in your head or your body, who are you going to tell? I'll be honest, for the first, you know, 30, 40 years of my life, when, the, when he says, are you exercising? I nod my head. You bet, doc. No, I mean, I'm 50 pounds overweight. There's no way I'm exercising. You have to be honest with your doctor. And at the same time, the physician needs to be able to listen and understand and come up with a solution, not just, well, go, you know, go do it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I think, too, it's important, Sarah Jeannie, to incorporate some of our conversation around other barriers. So, for instance, some of our patients may have cultural barriers or um, <laughs> barriers around whose role is what. Would you like to take one of those on? Yes, absolutely. Cultural background is is extremely, at least for me, because uh, I uh, am uh, I come from another country and uh, trying to understand the lifestyle of uh, when I started practicing here in this country, trying to understand the lifestyle of the people here and what kind of food they eat and all that makes a lot of uh, uh, difference. So it's an education part and education not only for the physician but also for the patient. And as George said, like. Uh, I think he's one of the very well-educated uh, patient who knows what's going on with himself. So he's trying to take care uh, of himself and take the lead on it. But I think as a provider, like I said, the cultural barrier, the other thing could be a language barrier. So we see patients from different strata of the society. So we have to come down to their level and make sure that we kind of educate them and all of us are giving the same message all the providers as as Mary Jo was just mentioning all providers have to be giving the same message to the patient and understand the goals that way if the education is the same and they're hearing the same thing from different people I think that helps a lot I would add it's not always also about education we have to figure out what their barriers are. I've been a nurse for a number of years, and every time someone would get readmitted with high blood sugars, oh, we need to educate them. They could teach me about diabetes. They live with it every day. But what is it was making it such that they couldn't take care of themselves at home to keep that stable? Mary Jo, what would you like to add? Well, I think it, that's a, a, an extremely important point, Anne. Um, when we talk about barriers, you know, I, I shared that I spent the first 10 years of my career doing healthcare for the homeless. And, you know, when you think about barriers, when you talk about um, trying to work with homeless patients, you know, when their priorities are where am I going to sleep tonight um, and what, where am I going to get my next meal, uh, and we're trying to talk to them about managing their cholesterol, it just it doesn't make any sense, Right. So you really have to work with them, and I was fortunate enough to be have a team of a social worker and an outreach worker who helped me um, solve these problems for our patients and make sure and assist them in getting stable housing and addressing those issues. And then, of course, it's always the, the cost of medication and, and the availability of medication. And sometimes patients are embarrassed to admit that they can't afford medicine. Um, and so I think it's being sensitive to that and asking those questions, you know, um, about their medications and are you able to get your medications and can we assist them. And sometimes patients don't realize that there are programs out there that can help them get medications. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of, of substituting a different similar medication that's on, on their formulary for their insurance plan 
um, or sometimes it's the extreme of we need to get um, help and assistance through the pharmaceutical companies to get them free medication. And so again, I think you're absolutely right, Anne, that sometimes when patients are out of control, it's is because it's beyond their control. Um, and we really need to, to have those conversations that are really uncomfortable for our patients sometimes. They don't want to um, admit that they have problems um, financially. They may be embarrassed or, you know, especially in what's going on in our country right now, um, we have a lot of, uh, most of people have their insurance tied to employment. And with um, this drastic increase of unemployment, I worry about the health of our country um, because so many people's insurance is tied to employment. And so I think especially right now, we need to be very sensitive to that um, and making sure we prescribe medications that are affordable um, and available um, to our patients. I would agree. And I think right now on that conversation, even uh, educating ourselves and for those of us who are teaching uh, our future uh, providers, educating about public health and public health initiatives and including cultural training, those types of things are extremely uh, important. A lot of our students don't always have the same uh, knowledge because of lack of experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to have them understand that, uh, that they have to evaluate and assess a patient's health literacy. Do they know what is available? And do they know what, whose role is what? Mary Jo, mm -hmm. would you like to talk a little bit about that as a mid-level? Right. Well, when we talk about, you know, um, our different roles and, and things like that and, and addressing things, I think we really talk about, when you talk about educating the next generation, I think the bigger piece of that, when I was in PA school, we didn't know about cultural competency and we didn't know about healthcare disparities. And it wasn't until um, the report in 2002, Unequal Treatment, came out that we really were aware of healthcare disparities. And now we teach cultural competency. And I think that that's one of the big pieces of, of solving the problems of healthcare disparities that we're seeing right now, especially with the COVID-19. We're seeing a disproportionate percentage of the African-Americans and Hispanics being affected by COVID uh, versus their white counterparts. And, you know, I think it's just acknowledging that healthcare disparities and social, there's challenges with social determinants of health that we acknowledge that those things exist um, and teaching that to our, our students um, so they are aware of those things and then um, making sure we address those. And I think part of the thing that we really stress here at St. Ambrose is um, standardizing protocols and evidence-based medicine. And if we practice evidence-based medicine um, and treat everyone the same, then there, then hopefully those healthcare disparities will go away. I know there's lots of larger problems too, but I think that that's a start that we can actually acknowledge that those exist and then we can move forward in finding the solution. I'd like to add, because I agree, evidence-based practice is extremely important in our cares and, and in our plan of cares, but not all evidence fits all people. True. So in that piece of it, that's where we need to listen to the individual or the community. For instance, if we're seeing a, a large disparity of diabetes in an area, we need to listen and look to see are there food deserts in that area. Uh, or if it's the person who comes in and says that they have no insulin because they broke their bottle, they very may have broken their last bottle and it costs $1,000 to replace because their insurance doesn't cover a second. 
So we have to be sure that we listen to the individual as well in in our cares, whether it be community or or the person. George, do you have anything to add? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Just quickly, I just want to add, and I think uh, hospitals and doctors have been uh, proactive in this sense in trying to help the patients uh, manage these chronic problems. And most importantly, like diabetes, is they have like a care team which involves uh, the nurse practitioners, the doctors, the uh, actually even the front desk is also educated. Then you have the social workers, as Mary Jo was mentioning. So all these people have like a different outlook. How can we help with the insurance? How can we help with their social stuff? So all the hospitals, doctors, just have like a care team which is kind of uh, I think we have made lots of uh, leaps and bounds strides in this direction in trying to help patients. And I think the Institute of Person-Centered Care making sure that again our focus is patient-centered and person-centered and I think that that's going to really make the big difference um, when we moving forward and trying to help our patients succeed in managing their chronic illnesses. We have to remember who's the center of the care. And as, as George mentioned at the beginning, you know, it really has to be the patient. It has to be on his terms. Um, and, and we have to adapt to that and, and make our goals his goals. I would agree. And then incorporate the disparities yeah. into that discussion for motivational interviewing and, and appropriate care planning, that sort of thing. I think at this point, because we're getting close to time, that I also want us to reflect on our current national climate because it's important for us to share the results of disparities that people of color face. Statistics show that African Americans are more likely to die from heart disease, high blood pressure, and hypertensive renal disease, cancer, diabetes, HIV, and violence at higher rates than Caucasians. Also, COVID-19's impact is shockingly disproportionate across race. These statistics, who are mothers, fathers, siblings, and significant others, have been directly linked to barriers in communities, higher poverty rates, decreased community access to public and health services, and educational disparities. We each believe that all people have the right to health care and the principles of social justice in our practice and health policy. Collectively, we believe we must be allies and eliminate health disparities, improve quality of care, and promote health and safety for all. We encourage all of our peers and community members to engage in educating themselves and engaging in positive change. Mary Jo, I think you had some thoughts on things that we can do as providers to engage in this. Yes, Anne, and I think that, again, it's really back to what I had said earlier about just acknowledging that healthcare disparities exist um, and that they produce worse health outcomes, and we really need to address those, um, not only in our practices, but on a national level and a policy level as well. Um, the other thing is, again, like I mentioned, standardizing protocols will help. Um, Another thing that we talk about in our courses here at St. Ambrose is recognizing implicit biases and then teaching cultural competency and and knowing that cultural competency isn't something that we teach. It's a lifelong process. Um, And it's just about a matter of of, um, recognizing those things. And again, um, I think if we're all aware of those things, then we can really make a difference in, in how we take care of our patients.
I would agree. I also think sometimes we forget as providers that we need to engage in our peer conversations about voting and, and how are we creating access to that, because that will change a lot of disparities as well. Um, Sarah Jeannie, coming from another country, what are your thoughts? I think, like I told you, educating, like it's an educational process for the whole thing. Like, okay, I've come here. So how is the lifestyle here? How is it like I have to change my mindset in trying to teach these patients or understand their goals and what are their things? So it's like, uh, like I told you, I'm very strong on this education. It's not only for the patient themselves, but also for physicians. Mm-hmm. I would add too, you know, when we think about healthcare disparities, is really um, sometimes we need to discuss these things with our patient. What are their um, barriers that they have, their social and economic barriers and challenges that they have, and, and addressing that. And sometimes we forget to ask about insurance and things like that. And just encouraging our patients to ask questions and, and be a big part of their care. And as full circle back to how, what George began with, it's about that relationship with our patients and, and connecting with our patients um, and building that rapport so they are comfortable um, disclosing those really personal things that George had mentioned at the beginning. Um, and I think it's all about building that trust and having that, that connection. I would agree. And then if I could just echo from the the patient's point of view, don't be afraid to ask the questions. Google is not the answer. The doctors know what they're doing. So do not be afraid to ask. Like I said, they work for you. You're paying them a lot of money. You and your insurance company, they, they work for you. Ask the questions. Get your answers answered. Questions answered, I guess. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Today was very insightful, and I truly appreciate A. George for sharing your story, and both you, Sergini, and Mary Jo for being a part of the conversation. I wish you all the best. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast. Brought to you by St. Ambrose University's Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALA-FM. We look forward to next time when local experts discuss justice and health throughout our food systems. You can learn more about the Institute for Person-Centered Care by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter.